Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that a move. I'm Corey Johnson, today with episode number 202. Well, just ahead, JP Morgan deals with the world after last month's financial crisis, some big changes. And robotic surgeries gaining in popularity. Intuitive Surgical sees the benefits. And we're going to look at using technology to kickstart agricultural innovation, growing things where they struggled before. We're going to talk to BioSeries Crop Solutions CEO Frederico Truco. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. You're not stuck with iTunes. You can go to Spotify or Google Play or Stitcher or iHeart or TuneIn or Player FM, you name it. But hit the subscribe button to make sure you catch every show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks and the Move. Joining me to help me do that, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Um, Isaac, lots going on in the world of business. Um, we had a lot of uh, earnings from financial companies in the last week. And I think, you know, I don't know if I've told you this, but our, our episode, our special episode we did on Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and when we interviewed the CEO of, uh, was it Washington? Uh, Washington, was Federal. Washington Federal. Washington uh, Federal up mm -hmm. in Seattle. Um, that was one of our most listened to uh, episodes ever. Uh, well, it was a good and prescient interview that we had. Happy to have him on that day that SVB was um, going collapsing. sneakers up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, and 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 indeed, um, uh, the the results from the banks we're going to look at today also uh, tell us a lot about what was happening at those exact moments. Yeah, this is going to be really interesting, Corey. What stocks you're drilling down on today? We'll let's start with a little bank we like to call J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan, I think I've heard of it, uh, trades under J.P.M. and shares have jumped 11% in the past month and are higher by over 7% in a year. Yeah, so, um, uh, the, the, you know, obviously a lot's going on here with what happened in March and all that precipitated by the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes. But that uh, really helped fuel the lending operations at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, their first quarter in net interest margin, uh, that's kind of the main uh, metric you look for in the banks, and that jumped by 49%. Um, and it caused the company to boost their forecast for revenue for the year. Uh, in January, they'd said it was going to be $73 billion. Now they say the revenue for the year is going to be $81 billion. So uh, really just fantastic growth in their lending operations. Uh, and yes, big inflows in the midst of the, uh, you know, I don't know if we call it a mini financial crisis last month, Certainly not many if your retirement was tied up with Silicon Valley Bank, but right. um, the failure of, of Silvergate, of Signature, and yes, Silicon Valley Bank, um, and the rush on deposits at other smaller banks um, saw people moving money to the money center banks, not least of which J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan saw $50 billion of new assets roll in last quarter. So the question wow. is, yeah, uh, amazing. And and the question is, you know, okay, God, they got all the money. Is that money going to stick around? Right. Uh, are those investors going to stay there? You know, are those deposits sticky? Well, in the conference call uh, with their most recent earnings, here is the CFO, 
Jeremy Barnum and followed by CEO Jamie Dimon talking about the stickiness of those deposits. Are they going to stick? Well, so first of all, we don't know, right? The deposits just came in. We don't know. We're guessing. Number two, the deposits just came in. So by definition, these are somewhat flighty deposits because they just came into us. So it's prudent and appropriate for us to assume that, that they won't be particularly stable. Number three, there's a natural amount of internal migration of deposits to money funds. So you have to overlay that, and that's embedded in our assumptions. And number four, it's a competitive market. And you know it's entirely possible that people temporarily come to us and then over time decide to go elsewhere. So for all of those reasons, um, you know, we're just being realistic about the stickiness of this. Yeah, I, add, I, I, wouldn't, there is, I would say categorically, there's no pricing power that the bigger banks have. Because if you look at the pricing, and we look at pricing sheets all the time, every bank is in a slightly different position and every bank is competing in three months, six months, nine months, savings rates, and then you have the online banks, you got treasury bills, you got money market funds. So it's not, there's no pricing power for the bank, but obviously we all have different franchises and we're all in a diff, slightly different position. So I think you're hearing uh, they're being realistic about the stickiness um, and they think that they, those may be temporary deposits and they might over time decide to go elsewhere. Yeah, they were pretty candid about like, look, we don't know. Yeah. But hey, we've but, got it right now. But not counting on it. Corey, what is your next drill down? Another little bank we like to call Citibank. Citigroup, actually, is the name of the company. Citigroup, uh, Citibank trades under C, and C shares have climbed 14% in a month, but they're still lower by 5% if you're looking at a 12-month chart. So, so not quite the same trajectory as JPM. No, and, 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 and while there's fantastic uh, increase in their net margin as well, 49% for JP Morgan, it was 23% for Citigroup. But they put up the best quarter in the decade for fixed income trading uh, with interest rates uh, moving up so dramatically. Um, clients transacted more, uh, their corporate clients transacted more, and that meant for more uh, profits on their trading desk, um, the fixed income trading that is. Uh, and uh, you know they also saw big credit card defaults. So they've got a huge credit card business, branded credit card business, uh, as does JP Morgan Chase. But uh, um, uh, inflation chipping away at individual savings and, and, and that resulted in credit card defaults. Uh, indeed, a 49% increase in net credit losses at the firm. Um, uh, and that was rough. Uh, they responded by doubling their provisions for uh, bad debt for loan losses to $2 billion. And yes, they also saw a surge in deposits. So once again, JP Morgan saying, hey, these people aren't going to stick around forever. We can't count on their stickiness. What is Citigroup accounting on? Well, here's their chief financial officer talking about exactly that. So one, we did see uh, inflows in the quarter associated with some of the sector turmoil. Um, if you, we've looked at kind of deposit levels from call it March 7th, March 8th, through close to the end of March. And we certainly did see an uptick, call it uh, probably a little bit under $30 billion or so of inflows, uh, you know, in that period of time with a good portion of that um, um, a good portion of that in CC, in our CCB, our commercial middle market uh, client base. Um, you know, it's too soon to tell kind of how betas evolve, uh, but we do think that a good portion of those deposits will likely be, will likely be sticky. So there's Mark Mason at Citigroup saying they will likely be sticky. So 
look, either these businesses are very, very different, and they aren't on the grand scope of things, well, or one of these people is wrong, one of these companies is wrong. If J.P. Morgan is not betting on this money sticking around, uh, uh, and Citigroup is, somebody's going to prove to be wrong here. Well, I mean, in my opinion, these the inflows of these uh, new deposits since the collapses of the three banks a month ago, they're, maybe they're coming from similar sources, but Citigroup and J.P. Morgan are very different banks. They have different different footprints. Yeah, but the, in, in terms of, of of being safe place for safe uh, small businesses, safe haven for small businesses and individuals who are worried about their excess cash reserves at banks they saw as unsafe. Um, again, yeah, they they were both they were both and Bank of America. You can throw that, them in there uh, here as well. They they were drawing a lot of deposits from uh, uh, panicked depositors. And the question is, are they going to stick around? Are they going to go start chasing higher rates offered elsewhere uh, in the coming months as the fears subside? Uh, like I said, one of these banks is going to be proven to be wrong. And yeah. so that's one to uh, put, put the sticky note on that and come back and, and check for this in, <laughs> in six months or so and see who's screwed up. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at intuitive surgical. Intuitive Surgical uh, trades under ISRG, and ISRG shares have jumped 25% in the past month, but uh, they're still just high, just only higher by 2% in a year, so roughly flat over the past 12 months. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, it's fantastic gain really in the last day yeah. uh, for this company. Um, and this is a big company, you know, $94 billion market cap Silicon Valley company that makes robots used in healthcare. Um, uh, the use for surgeries. Really interesting um, stuff. I saw a picture of this recently, which I had never seen before. But essentially, they'll just they'll basically stick a hole in someone and put this little tube in there, and the robot goes in, and then the the um, uh, the surgeon operates the robot uh, without having to, you know, with this kind of laparoscopic um, incision. Uh, really intensive uh, stuff and really impressive stuff. Uh, this business, Intuitive Surgical, saw revenue grow 14% year over year to $1.7 billion. And they had a huge jump in the number of procedures that were using their robots. Uh, 26% year over year growth in procedures. Profits up, or I should say profits down just a little bit, $355 million versus $366. Uh, and they sold a bunch of machines. 312 of these machines, they called it the Da Vinci Surgical System. Uh, that's uh, up from uh, really one more than the previous year. Uh, and the total installed base of these systems, uh, this would make a great drill down bite someday, 7,779 systems out there in the world, 12% more uh, than a year previously. So the question is that, you know, that big jump, that that huge jump in, in the number of procedures done, 26%. Why is that happening right now? Well, here's Intuitive Surgical CFO, Jamie Samoth. We do think there's a little bit of a soft comp on the base period given some impact from COVID in Q1 of 22. You have three other drivers. We think there is some backlog effect from patients generally returning to more normalized healthcare routines given the effect of the pandemic over several years. Included within that is um, diagnostic pipelines. We see the last year or so of diagnostic pipelines being above pre-COVID levels. Second effect, there is um, strength in the U.S. in general surgery, particularly benign general surgery. And in our OUS markets, the non-urology side of our procedure categories are growing nicely. Um, we also think that relative to Q4, 
staffing has improved. Um, it's not where it was pre-COVID, but I think that's allowed for some incremental procedures to be performed. We don't have good estimates as to where the kind of various outperformances between those those uh, categories that we described, uh, market data lags there. Um, certainly, that's the market share gains, particularly in, in benign general surgery uh, in the U.S. So, yeah, surgery in the U.S., people uh, going back there for elective stuff or other things that they're putting off happening uh, in size and in, in surgical with that 12% growth in machines out there, um, ready to, to pick up some of that uh, business and uh, seeing their devices used more and more. You know, this begs the question, I mean, intuitive surgical, who are their main competitors? I don't know that they really have one. I right. Mean, uh, what what they do out there is is fairly unique. Innovative, um, right. I mean, I've got to give a shout out to our good buddy, Pim Fox, if he's listening, our former Bloomberg colleague who, I mean, I've known him for a long, long time, so have you. Um, I don't want to say how long, but uh, I mean, he's been tracking intuitive surgical since its inception. And <laughs> I mean... Um, and they're still, and so this has been around, they've been around for a long time. They're doing a lot of innovative, really interesting work, um, making surgeons' lives a little easier and patients' lives a little easier. Um, it's interesting to see. I love to hear from some I talked of the to a surgeon yesterday, actually, who, was, who does not use this. And oh, yeah? was, uh, when he, he mentioned it to me sort of admiringly um, uh, about how much uh, he admires. You could just see it in his eyes, like he's like, oh, those things are, those things are really cool. Well, why isn't he using them then? Because he does plastic surgery and they don't they don't do that stuff with it. They will eventually. I'm having some things done. Good. Thank I God. I, I'm finally getting those calf implants I've been needing for so long. <laughs> I think that's why girls don't uh, stare at me in the gym. It's my lack of calf implants. Sure. Sure. I'm sure that's the reason. No. that's a, Hey, um, uh, as to the competition uh, uh, for intuitive surgical. So in their SEC filings, in their 10 and K filing, uh, the companies that they list as competitors in robotic-assisted assisted procedures include Ascensus Surgical, uh, CMR Surgical, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Metacroid Corporation, Metarobotics, and other companies that we know like Medtronics, Olympus, uh, and Titan Medical. So yeah. uh, there's some minor competition around there. Also, around, importantly, around... Uh, the servicing component of this um, and and other aspects of the planning, like the 3D modeling and stuff that they're they're increasingly getting into uh, to uh, offer more robust uh, things to surgeons who might use their robots. Well, I've been knocking on Intuitive Surgical's door for about a year. So we are going to have uh, their CEO come on our show and it's going to be an interesting conversation. Can't wait. Yeah. But in the meantime, um, really uh, just in time for Earth Day, Really interesting conversation here with the um, uh, CEO of, of a company that's involved in genetically modified foods, uh, and in, in particular, helping to grow wheat and soy in places where uh, in drought-resistant strains of it, so we can have more food for our earth. Uh, controversial in some circles, but a fascinating uh, conversation about how that business works uh, and where that business is and what it costs to run that business. BioSeras Crop Solutions CEO. Frederico Truco joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more. Build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. 
All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Bioceras Crop Solutions, uh, Federico Truco. Uh, glad to have you, Federico. Where are you right now? I'm in Rosario, Corey, so it's great to be here with you. Well, we're, we're glad to, to have you. Um, your company is, is, has a fascinating business um, that I will misdescribe, or I'll let you try to accurately describe. What's, what's the shorthand for what, what problem you guys are solving? So we, we are essentially trying to help agriculture transition to the new age. Uh, and to do that, we are trying to source technologies um, from different institutions to try to tackle these two very significant challenges that we face in, in, in agriculture, I should say, but more broadly um, in sort of life on earth, no? which have to do with climate change. So how can we keep uh, crops productive as weather changes and deal with droughts and extreme weather events uh, while we minimize also the uh, externalities, environmental externalities that are often associated to um, agriculture at scale? And, and also, how do we transition away from the use of some of these chemical products that are concerning to consumers and generate solutions that are friendlier while we preserve productivity. So the name of the game is how do we do all of these while keeping food affordable, right? So that's uh, where we are. So, so is, is it too much shorthand to say crops for, for a, a world where the climate is changing? No, I think that is, uh, explains significant part of what we do. And, and all, but also uh, not just crops, but uh, uh, preparing the soil uh, in ways that, that aren't necessarily involving chemicals, but are using, um, uh, I'm trying to avoid using the word genetics. I'm going to use the word genetics now, and we'll get into that for a minute. But, but trying, trying to come up with um, uh, things to help prepare the soil to grow better and also seeds that respond to that better uh, because climate is making uh, uh, traditional agriculture in traditional places more difficult. And chemicals, turns out, weren't the great long-term solution that they might have seemed at a certain time. Yeah, I think the, 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 there's a paradigm shift no? in moving away from high-input, high-productivity agriculture to one that is more balanced in its approach. It does require a deeper knowledge of the biology, the ecosystems, how things interact with each other, how, how organisms interact with each other. But at the end of the day, makes agriculture uh, regenerative in nature. So how can we have at the end of each cycle soil that is more productive than what it was at the beginning and, and, and not sort of erode away the productivity of agricultural ecosystems? I think uh, that is today doable. Um, it's what we call sustainable intensification so that we can use less land to produce the same or produce more in the same land. And we don't have to extend the frontier of agriculture into native ecosystems uh, so that we can preserve them to fulfill very important um, functions, no, from a planet's preservation viewpoint. It helps when you're growing soybeans because, of course, soybeans add nitrogen to the soil instead of take nitrogen out of the soil. But your, your soybeans uh, uh, are, are modified in a certain way to grow in ways, you know, your, your investment uh, materials kind of show some before and after pictures. I'll put some of those up on my Twitter as before. I say before and after. Uh, I'll put them, these are my images on my Twitter, but um, they're, they're images of what 
uh, uh, regular seed, how regular seeds grow, or regular beans grow, and how your beans grow, and even, even uh, images of the beans themselves, and the beans um, uh, suffer from certain environmental problems um, uh, that your beans don't look like that after the same environmental problems are imposed. How can you describe that uh, better than I just mumbled? <laughs> No, I mean, you've done it fairly well, but uh, what we're trying to do is uh, use the diversity that, that ex the diversity that exists in nature. So if, for instance, sunflower can do better under drought because of having certain genes, why don't we incorporate those genes into soybeans like we have done so that they can uh, better withstand uh, drought episodes, which are becoming more frequent because of climate change. So by doing that, we can improve the productivity um, when there is less water. We can allow plants to continue to perform photosynthesis uh, so that we can offset CO2 emissions at a higher level. Uh, and all we've done is basically source uh, a system that has been designed by nature, evolved in a different species, and transfer that into this one crop of interest called soybeans that are very good at fixing nitrogen, well, maybe they can now do better at dealing with less water, no? which is uh, where we come into play. And is, and is this what you call your HB4 technology? Yes, HB4 is short for one of the, the, the sunflower gene called HAHB4. Helianthus anus is the scientific name for, for sunflower, so the HA are sort of coming from, from the sunflower scientific name. Um, so that's the name of the drought tolerance technology. Today, this is not only uh, incorporated into soybeans, but we have done the same thing in wheat. So you can have a cereal that is used in the winter in Latin America that can be rotating with a summer legume. So all of a sudden, you can have a field covered almost 300 plus days in a year instead of only 110 with two crops that are fixing nitrogen and helping the soil regain its balance. And uh, that's what we call sustainable inten intensification. So it's, it's a systems approach. No, it's, it's not just doing one product for soybean farmers or one product for wheat farmers. It's sort of how these two technologies can come together into a holistic approach of how we use an ecosystem to maximize productivity and minimize environmental externalities. And then how does the business well, the work after that? So once, once you've developed these say. technologies, you develop these seeds, you develop these other preparations uh, that go into the soil, how, how, do you, how does your business work? Are you selling the seeds? Are you selling the right? Do they, do they, do they recreate themselves? Can you plant the seeds that grow from the soybeans and, and have more? Like how does that business functionally work? So traditionally, we would sell the seeds and, and other products that we have uh, developed and, and designed. Um, and that today explains the, the lion's share of our current revenues. But we are transitioning away from that sort of uh, ag input provider model to one where we are engaging with farmers as partners. So what we do is provide technology. Sometimes these technologies might not work the way we anticipate. So we want the farmers to tell us that and to help us iterate so that we can perfect the technology in every cycle, but not keep sort of that in an R&D process that takes forever. Have this be done in the field, in real time, with farmers helping us. Uh, and at the end of the day, move faster, which is kind of uh, the name of the game. So how can we 
work with farmers as partners. We engage in a contractual arrangement where we provide these technologies. They have a know-how in terms of how to use them. And at the end of the day, we produce soybean, we produce wheat that has um, uh, a number of different uh, connotations associated to that. So it's not just producing this raw material, but also being able to register activities and understand what happened in that environment so that we can tell consumers how much uh, CO2 was fixed, how much water was saved compared to an average situation, what type of products were utilized and what's kind of the ecotoxicological footprint of those products. Are we hurting biodiversity? Are we regaining biodiversity? Um, so all of that information that can be attached to an inventory of grain that's being produced in the field uh, sort of allows us to initiate that farm to fork dialogue uh, at a very low cost. And I think uh, that is in a way where we are transitioning from a business viewpoint, from a classical traditional ag input provider to uh, a partner of farmers in this process of originating raw materials with um, data associated to them that is meaningful to processors and to consumers at the end. So as you grow that business, what, what's the uh, pun fully intended? Yes, I did say grow that business. As you grow that business, uh, what, what are the regulatory hurdles that you're sort of facing right now? Like what's in your calendar is the most biggest, most biggest, I said, the biggest regulatory hurdles right in front of you right now are what? Well, initially, some of these technologies uh, require genetic engineering. So you have to go through a regulatory process to show that except for the one attribute that you're trying to change, which is the drought tolerance, everything else remains the same. The wheat or soy that we produce is substantially equivalent to their conventional counterparts. So that took us a long time. You need to do this not only in the countries where you have your customers or your partners, but also in the countries that will buy from your customers or your partners. So if we produce beans in Brazil, we need the Chinese then to be willing to accept these modifications. So it took us a long time to get all of these approvals in place. Today, we have the most significant ones. So we, we can start rolling out and scaling up these technologies. Uh, I think th there are geographies that are um, still challenging, uh, like for instance, Europe, uh, doesn't have a good track record in terms of genetic modifications. So there we, we might go at a, at a more distant, in a more distant time, not something that we intend to pursue immediately. But I would say that after obtaining the Chinese approval, which was kind of a milestone, very significant milestone for us in terms of soybeans last year, and recently the Brazil approval for wheat, uh, that is the number one customer of Latin American wheat, not only to import from, from Argentina, but also to do in-country production in Brazil. Uh, we, have, um, we have achieved most of them uh, regulatory milestones or the regulatory objectives that were gatekeeping uh, uh, this part of the business. Now, as we bring new technologies, we, we have invested heavily together with a company that was used to known as Marron Bio Innovations in the US uh, now right, part right. of the Biocetis Crop Solutions Group in uh, trying to replace synthetic chemistries in seed treatments. And those are products that will need clearance from uh, European regulators. Uh, so th that is something that is still pending and very significant for us. 
I can go kind of back to the unit costs. I mean, when we look at what a farmer is normally paying for for uh, germinate wheat or or, or uh, beans or whatever, what's what's the, how much more expensive is your better performing, more drought resistant product? So initially, I mean, we're obviously limited by inventory. So we we are uh, for for initial sales in the first year, we probably the price. Uh, tends to be higher than what we expect the price to be at steady state, almost doubling the, the cost of goods for the farmer. Now, I say this in a way that might sound um, too aggressive on the farmer, but the reality is that this is coming together with a package where at the end of the day, farmers make more money. And, and that is obviously driving adoption because we are buying back the grain from them. Some of the seed that is produced is seed that we retain for future sales as we ramp up inventory. So it comes with improved economics compared traditional grain production. Now, as we move forward, our rule of thumb is the following. For every $4 we make a farmer, we want to keep one. Um, so that will be kind of the overall pricing strategy. Now, uh, today we, we are probably um, slightly above that uh, and and not quite there yet. And what's your what's your key to selling this to farmers, to convincing farmers this is the way they should go and change the way they do this? Is it are these big agriculture companies you're selling to, or are these the 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 few uh, remaining sort of family farms and so on? No, I, both. I think it's uh, we start faster with the family farms that might not be count that might be somewhat counterintuitive counterintuitive to the audience. One might think that the mega farmers are the ones that engage first. Well, but they can adopt the change faster. So it takes right? longer for us to become. Right. So, and, and, and the reality is that uh, we have also a very close proximity to growers. We started as a company that was founded by farmers, no, as almost like a co-op. Uh, we're a private corp today listed in, in the NASDAQ, but, uh, so we have in, in our original shareholder base, people that farm maybe 2.5 to 5 million hectares. So that gave us a farmer proximity that we used in getting the technology exposed. Uh, it takes time. Farmers need to see it for themselves uh, before they can engage. Um, but if there is one thing that is top of mind in, in any farmer around the world is how can I sort of better manage weather. I mean, I was born in a family farm and uh, I remember like praying so that we would get rain or always look into the sky. And that works. So this is something that is top, top of mind. <laughs> it works, yes, sometimes. If you behave well, it works. Uh, those sound like uh, very Catholic prayers. Uh, but but, but uh, uh, theology aside, <laughs> guilt aside, Maybe maybe we thank God for unanswered prayers. I do have some of that guilt, uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, no, I know, I know, I I know exactly what you speak of. Um, I think that um, uh, it's interesting to watch family farms and how different they are right now, but also adapting to climate change because you can move crops from one location in the south to the north, or in your case, in South South America, from the south uh, uh, to the to the from the north to the south, or the north south to the north, depending on how climate uh, is changing those areas. But those family farms can't move. And indeed, some of the, the corporate farms also uh, are stuck with what they've got and harder to change crops. You're, so it almost seems like you're forestalling the long-term problems uh, brought on by climate change. Yeah, I think it's, it's about generating stability, predictability, understanding how the life sciences revolution can create solutions for, for agriculture today. 
Uh, and I think uh, it, it does require for all of us to stay sharp and educated and um, obviously understand that what my grandparents did or my, what my father did is not what I'm likely to be doing in, in my farm. There's an evolution. We have no-till farming, different rotating crops. Uh, at the end of the day, it's this one race to produce organic molecules that we need for different needs from feeding ourselves to fueling ourselves uh, and doing that uh, in the best possible way so that we can preserve the one planet that we have. I'm not advocate. I mean, if, if others can develop extraterrestrial life, uh, I'm all for that. But uh, just in case, uh, I, I think we should preserve the one planet that we have. So uh, looking briefly at your capital structure, you guys have increased, you guys have financed this company by selling a lot of shares, a lot more shares. You have this uh, strange situation where your, your enterprise value has increased greatly and your share price has diminished uh, noticeably, um, I, well, at least for the last year or so, depending on from when you measure it. Uh, what are your plans capital structure wise? Is this the time to double down, sell more shares, raise some debt and make the business bigger? Or is this the point at which you start kind of sticking where you are on a capital structure basis so you can start to collect some of the benefits of this long-term investment? Look, uh, I, I, I understand the sort of uh, the introduction to the question. I, what, what I would like to say first is that uh, we became listed in 2019 and, and were the, uh, trading at $4.30 when we be, became listed. So today, a share that is below $12 might seem cheap when we had a $16 high last year. Uh, and, and in part, uh, it was a tough year for the financial markets for growth stories like ours, but we did do a dilutive uh, investment last year where we printed 16 million shares to buy a company that was um, at a loss, that was negating Evita. So like a company that was losing 10 to $15 million a year but that we felt was a unique opportunity to basically close the story in terms of having everything that we needed to execute on the vision. So might have seemed expensive at the time to buy uh, with, with a 20, 25% dilution, something that was losing money, but it's what is today giving us the opportunity to lead in this particular space. So there's no other company today that can give farmers the opportunity to fully transition away from chemicals and to produce at the level at the, with the levels of productivity that they have today or even higher. So that for us uh, was a very important decision. And we truly believe that in the very short, uh, in, in a very short time, in very short future, uh, it will uh, create a significant value for our shareholders. Um, now, we don't need to do this every year. We have uh, close to $80 million in cash, which is more than what we need to fully execute on the growth that is ahead of us. So don't expect us to come and print more shares or raise additional debt uh, on top of what we currently have that might be equity link. I think we have now everything we need to execute on, on our vision and hopefully in, in the future, uh, the efforts of the past uh, will not be, uh, will be properly rewarded. That's my commitment as a CEO here. Federico Truco, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Federico Truco is the CEO of Bioceras Crop Solutions. All right. Thanks, Corey. Coming up next, the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Bioceras right after this. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And as we continue to explore the world of business in the Drill Down podcast, let the rest of the world know what we're doing. Leave a review for us on the Apple iTunes app. And let the world know what you hear in the Drill Down. Even tell a friend. The more the merrier. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And we're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot, in this case, about Biosaris. Uh, interesting story, Isaac. And I try to stay out of the, the conversation about uh, GMOs and whether or not it's ethically okay and the plague that could be unleashed upon the world by accident and all the science fiction stuff. Um, uh, that's a political argument almost. And I, you know, I don't know if it's a business argument for these guys, except for the difficulty of getting their new crops approved. And that's the number that I want to talk to you about. Uh, there was a study done by a group called Phillips McDougall uh, out of the UK about the cost of the discovery, development, and authorization to get a new uh, genetically, genetically, modified, genetically modified crop into a market you want to guess what that cost is? It's got to be high, I would assume. $136 million. Yeah. In fact, look, the police are coming right now to arrest someone trying to sell GMO foods here in San Francisco. Oh, no, that's not it. It's just an ambulance, just a regular fire department ambulance. So look, uh, genetically modified foods um, uh, are obviously a political issue here. But uh, what we're doing historically with the crops isn't working to feed our world right now. We have uh, amazing numbers of both obesity uh, uh, and uh, uh, starvation, hunger uh, in our world. And uh, something's got to change. Maybe these crops are it. We will see. We will see. All right, you've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson stitches this all together extraordinarily. That's what a good editor does. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Podcast Network.